0: I never cease to be amazed at how human our dog Jack, a Blue Heeler Catahoula mix, behaves. Jack scratched his eye, rubbing his head on the grass, and developed a slight eye infection for which the vet prescribed an ointment. The thing about this ointment was that it had to be applied directly to the eyeball. Brenda at first thought that the best approach was to put Jack in a headlock and hold him still while she applied the medication that was on the tip of her finger. But Jack doesn't like to be restrained. He's a muscular 65 pounds and there was no way someone was going to restrain him enough to touch his eye. The very notion of a headlock is abhorrent to Jack. However, when she had him sit, and stay in the middle of the room with an obvious treat in her hand, he let her touch his eye with the ointment on her finger, without moving. Now, that seems pretty human. Most people just naturally don't want to be restrained, restricted, inhibited, especially against their will. More than that, there is something within us that, craves freedom. Uh, the Hebrew word for salvation has some, has among its definitions freedom from everything that narrows, diminishes, or constricts life. One psycho-spiritual author I was reading just the other day argued that there is something inherent in human nature that longs to be boundless and that in fact if you follow his teaching you can achieve total freedom complete boundlessness we can achieve anything he writes if we're willing to abandon our own delusional self-limiting story and tune in to a higher bandwidth this of course is in spite of its own Uh, delusional nature, uh, not a new message. It would be difficult to count the number of movies that have been made following the now cliched plot of the reluctant or rogue hero, who by a combination of sheer willpower, guts, determination, defiance, physical toughness, and cleverness, with maybe a little luck thrown in, defies destiny, fate, giant orgs and vulnerable and irresistible killer machines and inevitable prophesied doom to create their own destiny and save the universe. So at the end of the first Matrix film, Neo telephones the malevolent machines and computers who are in charge of both the real and virtual World, a matrix of human beings, to tell them that their time is up. They are no longer in control. He is letting people know of, quote, a world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries, unquote. That is an immensely appealing message to the postmodern world. Well, actually, it's been a popular message since the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve began the whole human potential movement. By freedom, most people seem to mean the ability to do what they want, when they want, and how they want. A world in which there are no rules or controls, at least not that apply to them. Of course, if someone at school or work or off the street accosted us with Neo's message, we would think them to be either delusional or kidding us. Yet we buy into philosophies and religions that tell us that we're all boundless. It seems to me that one thing this shows is a basic misunderstanding of what is meant by a rule or a law. So I'd like to make a couple of observations regarding rules or laws and freedom. First, there is no human existence that is not limited in one way or another, that is not governed by rules of one sort or another. Rules may be thought of then as prescriptive or descriptive. A sign in a library or at a museum saying no talking or simply quiet, or one in the park saying dogs must be kept on leash at all times, or a no parking, violators will be towed sign, are all prescriptive rules. When you eat, chew with your mouth closed, is a social convention a social rule developed by polite society. You don't have to follow it if you don't want to, but if you don't, you probably will not be invited to dinner at Windsor Castle a second time. There's a certain arbitrariness to such rules. We may, to varying degrees, agree or disagree with them, and can, if we like, work to get them changed they are frequently broken with impunity. If no one is around to hear you mutter a protest, that it is a free country and you don't have to clean up after your Great Dane, and they don't see you walk off Sand's poop bag, you will have successfully free person that you are evaded that rule. Descriptive rules are quite different. They are, as the word suggests, simply descriptions or explanations of how things work, of how things are. They have nothing to do with what we like or what we do not like. They are explanations that things work in a certain way. For example, when solving an equation with variables on one side of an equal sign, Whatever you do to one side of the equal sign, you must also do to the other. That's not a rule someone arbitrarily made up, but an explanation of how algebra is done in order to successfully solve a problem. We can refuse to follow that rule. But if we do, we just don't solve the problem. Whether we agree or disagree, whether we like or dislike it, That's just how algebra works. The laws of physics restrict how far I can do a standing broad jump. Contrary to video special effects, no one is going to leap successfully across Fifth Avenue from one tall building to another. The law prohibiting any attempt to do so is prescriptive. People not wanting to clean up The mess someone would make in attempting such a feat or put up with the danger to those walking innocently below made a law that you can't try to jump from the top of one building on Fifth Avenue to another. The law of physics is different. The laws of physics are descriptive. Physics has nothing to say about anyone's freedom to attempt to jump across 5th Avenue. Physics simply says that it cannot be physically done. All jumps are bound by physical laws that cannot be overcome. My point is that there are many rules which we can choose to follow or ignore. But there are others which simply describe the way things are. Consequently, E. Stanley Jones, who was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize five times, noted, aviators tell us that every moment they must obey those laws upon which flying depends or else. There can be no moral holidays in the air. You gain mastery only by obedience, only by following the laws of aerodynamics. Aviation, he wrote, did not invent these laws or impose them. It discovered them. All the world's great wisdom, spiritual, or religious traditions refer to themselves as a path or as the way. Jones thought that there is a basic question, that confronts us early in our quest, if indeed we are on a spiritual quest. Is there any such thing as the way? Is it possible, he asked, that the way is written into the nature of reality? Is there the way and not the way? Is there a way that gets results and a way that gets consequences? How about when it comes to the business of human living? How about when it comes over into more subtle relationships like the social, the moral, and the spiritual? Are there spiritual dynamics there? Can you do as you please and get away with it? Or do you find there is something which demands your attention and your cooperation if you are to live masterfully? if you are to live well. And is that something merely a set of conventions and customs built up by society? Or is it written into the very nature of reality? This leads me to a final observation regarding freedom. It seems that freedom does not reside in the ability to control, manage, or dominate other people or events. Nor is it the imposition of our will upon the world in which we exist, whether we attempt to do so crudely or whether we attempt such control and domination with finesse. In fact, the more we try to do so, the more confused, chaotic, and hurtful matters generally become. Every wisdom tradition recognizes that blind self-will is the affliction that holds humanity in bondage. Freedom, then, doesn't rest in our ability to control or to dominate, but in the power God has given us to choose. Freedom rests in the choosing itself. An alcoholic may reach the point where it appears that there's no longer any power or freedom to choose, but there is always at least a crack of freedom to make some small positive choice or decision. It may be nothing more than the acknowledgement that he or she is powerless over alcohol and that their life is unmanageable. Or crawl out of the trash bin where they are living and go to an AA meeting. But every good decision, no matter how small, will further increase the freedom to make the next good decision so that incrementally, step by step, life becomes worthwhile and freedom increases Frumkel said that on his first day at the death camp, spit on, battered, and cursed, he realized that he was under the complete control of his guards, the Nazis, except for one thing. He and he alone would choose his attitude toward the situation. One summer, Many years ago, I was canoeing down the Russian River with some friends. I'd never been before and quickly learned several important things about canoeing. For one thing, if you do not maintain your balance, if you lean too far one way or the other, you will soon tip over into the rushing water. A second thing is that unlike a kayak, in a canoe, you can't paddle upstream. You cannot go against the current. And the third was that canoeing requires the coordination, the cooperation of each paddler. If you do not maintain your balance, if you do not coordinate your efforts, and if you do not move with the current, canoeing is a frustrating, unhappy experience. But as soon as I learned those simple rules of balance, coordination, and going with the flow of the current, Canoeing became, for me, an enjoyable, satisfying experience, an experience that I would describe as carrying a feeling of freedom with it. It's paradoxical. We're not the most free when we ignore, defy, or oppose the physiological, psychological, intellectual, or spiritual rules of life and reality, but when we pay attention and work with them. That is, by the way, the fundamental meaning of the word obedience. To listen in such a way as to learn and to act with um, wisdom. Reality is like a great river, and freedom comes from knowing how to flow and work with its current. Freedom is not only freedom from but freedom is for and to. To be human, then, is to live with this strange paradox in which freedom is not so much freedom from something as freedom to or for something. If I am compulsively seeking money, status, power, sex, or some other self-gratification, then I'm not free for love or compassion or gratitude or spiritual ecstasy. There's something else E. Stanley Jones said about freedom and choosing that made an indelible mark on me. He said, apparently we are free to choose, but we're not free to choose the results of our choosing. Jones simply meant I can choose whatever path I want, but I'm not free to choose its destination. I'm running out of time for this particular podcast, so I will conclude this chapter on being human uh, in very summary fashion. Uh, I will mention uh, two other elements uh, very quickly of the human condition, fear and hope. In the novel Dune, named for the harsh desert planet God created to test the faithful, The Bene Gesserit, a politically powerful order of all female priests who can can can, uh, control and destroy enemies with the sound of their voice, have a mantra, a prayer. They repeat to prepare themselves for times of suffering, crisis, and of danger. Fear, they say, is the little death. The type of fear they have in mind is not the ordinary passing sort of fear necessary for survival, but the fear that may become chronic and constantly with us for no apparent reason. The fear that is the little death immobilizes us, leads us to react rather than to respond to the challenges of the moment, separates us from integrity, subverts us from awareness, derails our intentionality, and deadens our creativity. Fear has become so universal that our contemporary age has been called the age of anxiety. As a society, we have lived with so much fear for so long that we no longer have any idea of how chronically anxious we are or how abnormal or destructive fear is. Mainly, we try to deal with fear by some external means, addictions of one kind or another, physical exercise, what my health plan calls mindfulness, which I gather is a kind of intentional relaxation of tension. But our favorite is to medicate our fear. It doesn't solve anything, but it is convenient. Toward the end of my work on an MA in counseling psychology, I had an epiphany one afternoon while sitting in class. I thought to myself, this, meaning everything I had learned about the psychology of being human and the work of therapy, is helpful to me personally. And it is helpful to me in my desire to, to help others. But the real answers to the joys and sorrows of being human are not here. They are deeper, more paradoxical, and more mysterious. Religious, or if you prefer, perhaps spiritual in nature. That the sort of fear that Benny Jesuit calls the little death, is best confronted through the spiritual qualities of love, gratitude, and presence. Hope may be simply defined as the expectation of some future good. Hope is actually an essential quality of human existence, essential in that without hope, the body's immune system um, breaks down, and the hopeless person dies of one disease or another. Conversely, research has demonstrated that the mortality rate for patients in ICU units, where there is an atmosphere of hope, decreases and survival rates go up. There is, however, a distinction to be made between hope and mere wishful thinking. If someone says, I hope I win the $300 million lottery, they're not engaged in hopeful but in wishful thinking. It is wishful thinking because they have no real reason to believe that they will win the lottery and every reason to believe they won't. The student who has failed every test in medieval intellectual history so far this term and who has no idea of the philosophical developments in the Middle Ages, is engaged in mere wishful thinking when he or she says, I hope I get a good grade in that class. But the person who looks back over the years and sees how God has been at work in their life Uh, The man or woman who has experienced the love and goodness of God, the grace of Christ, the present and help of the Spirit, hopes in something or perhaps someone very real. Finally, real hope, mystical hope, is characterized by a kind of cheerful willingness to be surprised. That is, we are happy and willing For God to work out the future good we receive in God's own way and in God's own time, rather than according to our idiosyncratic demands and expectations. Well, that concludes this chapter. In the next chapter, I will begin reflecting on Scripture and its reliability as the Christian Spiritual Manual.